Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, journalist Paul Wells endured six weeks of Public Order Emergency Commission testimony. We talk about the big picture of the convoy and the government's response to it straight ahead. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. As we near the holidays, we are taking advantage of there being a bit of a lull in the news and talking about some of the big picture ideas, going in depth with some of our guests in a way we don't often get to when we're covering the news of the day. And today I wanted to revisit the Public Order Emergency Commission, which as you know, dominated much of my personal time and also the time of this show for uh, October and November and the uh, I think I think it was done in November yeah it just felt like it lasted a lot longer and this was the commission that over a six-week period really laid bare the details of the convoy the police response the city of Ottawa the province of Ontario the federal government how all of these different groups intersected and how they all discussed and viewed this event which everyone can agree was an important thing but few sides could really agree on the fundamental facts of. And that was why it was so interesting. Now, there were aspects of this that weren't as intriguing to me. For example, I was not personally as interested in the Windsor and Coote stories because my focus of coverage had obviously been on what was happening in Ottawa, which is, I think, what really was the trigger for the Emergencies Act, given that the Windsor and Coots blockades had been cleared well before or were underway in being cleared when the Emergencies Act came in. So I think that at the same time, it's fascinating to me to take this bigger picture look because polling has actually showed that Canadians think after this whole thing, the federal government came out ahead. Now, is this because the poll was wrong? That's possible. Or is it because there was a story that was missing? that Canadians weren't having access to. That's my inclination here that the media might have played a pretty key role in this. But I wanted to talk about this with a journalist who doesn't necessarily view the convoy the way I do, but has, I think, a a very uh, sharp eye and very strong BS detector about this. And, And as I mentioned, went through the entire process and followed this, and I think picked up a lot of key details along the way. And that is journalist Paul Wells, formerly of McLean's. Now he runs a great substack over at Paul paulwells.substack.com and hosts the Paul Wells show over at the Toronto Star and also has a a short book coming out through my publisher Sutherland House and its new periodical Sutherland Quarterly and that's dealing exactly with this topic that we're discussing now the Public Order Emergency Commission. Paul it's good to talk to you thanks for coming on today. Hi Andrew how are you? Good thank you how are you doing Uh, keeping uh, warm in Ottawa? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's I was in Calgary for several days, and it was uh, freaking cold there. So it's a little rainy, rainy today, but I'll take it. <laughs> Sounds good. I wanted to start off by talking about the the Public Order Emergency Commission. Now, uh, you did what not a lot of people could uh, withstand, which was uh, following along very closely these very long days, uh, days that dragged a lot of uh, very heavy detail in in the testimony, and then e- even more in the 
um, in the actual documents. And you managed to find the energy to write about this after slogging through it all. And, and you did so, and I'm always amazed with you at how quickly you can churn out copy when, when things happen. But I was wondering if you could speak to the why first and foremost, because like my interest in, in the commission came about from my interest in the convoy, which I was very invested in covering earlier in the year. What was your attachment to this story? So um, long-term sustained coverage of an institutional clash, like a trial, is a form in journalism. Uh, and I was, uh, as, the, as the convoy got started, I think after I wrote my first piece, I was talking with our friend Ken White, who uh, was my editor at McLean's, uh, published your uh, book about the convoy. And um, I was reminiscing about how uh, he used to be so impressed in the 90s when the O.J. Simpson trial was happening, and it lasted for many, many months. And Dominic Dunn, uh, the, the great American writer, covered it monthly for Vanity Fair. And there'd be 4,000 words every month about uh, the latest events in the, in, in the O.J. Simpson trial. And uh, Christy Blatchford at the National Post used to uh, cover all sorts of trials. And... Um, eventually also the Gomery uh, Commission of Inquiry into the sponsorship scandal, which I covered on a, for a much shorter amount of time uh, as one of several people writing for McLean's. So it, it's a form. You have, to, you have to be able to put up with a lot of boring uh, material. You have to find the connections between uh, material. So it's very much, uh, Ken talked me into keeping it up. And um, the idea was it was it was a conscious tribute to the kind of work that Christy Blatchford used to do for us and that Dominic Dunn used to do and that courthouse reporters have done forever. The you know the um, the the conflict at the center of the thing is incredibly lively. The uh, form and the setting is really not, and you have to figure out how to find the drama in in the extended event. It's funny you mention that because obviously when you watch like a courtroom drama in a movie, when that moment comes up that just shocks people, you know, it's there's dramatic music and everyone in the room gasps. There were a few moments that came up during the commission testimony where some bombshell will happen and it's like, wait, wait, did I hear that right? Did, did was Was that... Like was that was that what I thought it was? And and sometimes these things are very fleeting and they don't actually get any acknowledgement in the moment. And and you plucked a few of those out. Yeah. So I mean, um, one of the ones which funnily enough, having said all this, I actually didn't attend, was when the head of CSIS said that this event yeah. did not meet the CSIS test uh for um uh being a, a public order emergency which to some extent the government witnesses spent the rest of the commission trying to sort of uh, explain that pretty blatant apparent contradiction. Um, and then the, uh, the testimony of Peter Slowly, which I, which I thought was fascinating because it, it's another thing that happens in drama. Peter Slowly was, uh, until partway through this, the chief of the Ottawa police. And no one liked him and no one thought he was effective. And uh, suddenly he testifies and his testimony was quite compelling um, and, and believable. And, and, and then that was on a Friday. Uh, on the Monday following, it falls apart because the cross-examination comes and, and, and his testimony doesn't really stand up to any cross-examination. So that was a, that was a kind of an interesting uh, dramatic moment. And um, uh, 
Christopher Freeland, I actually haven't written about this uh, on my newsletter, but it's I'm going to go over it in the book. She talks about how she uh, discussed the economic impact of the border block blockings uh, at cabinet. And the numbers she was throwing around were just orders of magnitude larger than the numbers her own department was coming up with. Uh, and and uh, like the, the real cost of, of, of the Ambassador Bridge and the Coots uh, uh, border crossings were nowhere close to what Christopher Freeland thought they were. She had kind of misunderstood the, the numbers. Hmm. And uh, to me, that shows that, that, that anyone's appreciation of the legalities of this stuff is very approximate. And it's, yeah. and it's not really based on a, a, a careful reading of a test. It's, do we feel like using this Emergencies Act or do we not? I think that's what it came down to. Yeah, and then, and then come up with an excuse later. And, and not that I extrapolate too, too much from Twitter. And I think you were very wise to get away from Twitter many years ago. But on Twitter, the sense that I saw from a lot of the federal government's defenders was basically, we didn't like the convoy, the government invoked the Emergencies Act, and then the convoy was gone in a few days, therefore, we're fine with the Emergencies Act. And there didn't really seem to be from the outsider support anyway, this, this, even concern for what the laws were and whether it was legally justified, they were just happy with the outcome. Yeah. And you and I might disagree about the extent to which this is true, but there was a lot not to like about the convoy. I mean, there was, there were some, uh, it caused a lot of chaos in people's lives. It was uh, loud forever. It was, you know, and then the question is what's the appropriate remedy to that? But I do think it's true, I, and I certainly think it's true, the, the federal government, more than the other players in this thing, decided what the story was before they observed the unfolding of the event. Uh, you have uh, uh, government communication staffers discussing essentially narrative before there are trucks in Ottawa, or before there's, you know, protesters trucks in Ottawa. Um, and... And and once you've done that, I mean, uh, you know, there, there's people in in Ottawa. I think of the former journalist Ellie Alboin has written really thoughtfully about how if you become invested in a narrative, then you resist um, integrating new information that conflicts with that narrative. So if 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 you think that these truckers are monolithic, uh, antagonistic, and dangerous, then uh, it becomes hard to swallow any information to, to, to the effect that some of them were, but some of them weren't. Uh, they sure weren't monolithic. There was infighting that, um, uh, first of all, shows that it was a complex human event. And secondly, uh, if you were trying to undo the convoy, that might have actually come in handy. But um, th the very strong impression you get from the testimonies, the federal government was not interested in studying this group of people. They were interested in beating them. That phenomenon you describe is very much akin, I'd say, to conspiracy theorists, where once they've baked in that idea, anything that they're presented with that counters that only basically fuels the conspiracy. You know, they dismiss things that counter it and they elevate things that support it. And what I found interesting in terms of, of under, understanding the convoy, and that was a big reason that I, that I wrote my book, is I, I felt that people were not 
getting the complexity of this is that people who were part of that movement kind of saw it as, as being a feature and not a bug that they were not monolithic and that there was no central hierarchy and that they couldn't order anyone to do anything and that it was very grassroots. And it was interesting that that ended up becoming one of the key arguments against them in the commission hearings, especially when it came to this negotiation that had taken place between convoy organizers in the city of Ottawa, that the government's position was, yeah, but I mean, by their own admission, they weren't a homogenous group. They were all, they couldn't force anyone to do anything. So that disjointed nature actually became, I mean, to the government's view, a, a liability of the convoy. Yeah. So the question that comes up is why should the federal government talk to anyone in this group? Because they can't, uh, they can't bring anyone along with them. Yeah, even if they sat down with Tamara Leach and worked things out, there, there's no guarantee that that extends to the other however many thousands of people were there. Yeah, it's like pushing a string uphill. And I mean, that might be true. Um, uh, but, and, and, and I mean, what I think I'm going to end up writing uh, in a longer piece of journalism that, that is coming is um, that uh, nobody owns virtue in this debate nobody was entirely right like, it's going to be frustrating for a lot of people who are looking for uh, a winner and a loser a hero and a villain um, but it is striking that the federal government was not against negotiating with any of of, of these protesters they were against federal officials negotiating with the principals but they were super happy to have people from the city of ottawa negotiating with them mm -hmm. so they were they were all for having proxies talk to the protesters they uh, they were less excited about doing it themselves. And the proxies, the people from the city of Ottawa, especially the then mayor's chief of staff, uh, were furious about this. You know, we take it on the chin for sitting down with these people. Uh, and and meanwhile, they're complaining about federal politicians, federal policies, and 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 the 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 city of Ottawa didn't didn't like being put in that position. So, um, I mean, so I've asked myself, you know, hey, smarty pants, if, 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 if you, Paul Wells, were the prime minister of Canada at this time, would you sit down and talk to anyone? I think the answer is no. Would you, as prime minister, designate someone to talk to them? It's not as clear to me that, that uh, I mean, remember during the Oka crisis, not a perfect analogy, but the, the um provincial minister of justice sat down and, and talked to masked uh, indigenous protesters you know um you know the whole point of negotiation is you do it with people who disagree with you you don't do it with people who go who agree with you that's that's called agreement you know looking so at sure. yeah I, I would agree with that and I, I think that one of the big if we were to take a parallel history here and see what would have happened if. The question that I'm very curious about is what would have happened if the government had not settled on as clear a narrative as they took with the fringe minority, with unacceptable views, the standing with swastikas, really leaning into that. Because certainly my sense covering the convoy is that people were more frustrated with that than they were with vaccine mandates themselves a week into it. it. It's that, you know, Justin Trudeau's response to this, the government's response to this actually started to inflame more pushback. Now, it's entirely possible that that wouldn't have made a difference, that, you know, the government just standing up and saying, we condemn this protest, this is a lawless protest, it would have been the same. But do you think that that was a, a policy or a, uh, do you think that was a political decision for the government to lean into that narrative? Or do you think that was just what they believed? 
I mean, I, I can't, I can't really know. Um, but I'll say something, because uh, I've been fairly agreeable un until now, but I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you who would be inclined to not, to not like truckers who had, who, who strongly disagreed with them about uh, vaccine policy. It would be Justin Trudeau, because in the summer of 2020, a guy drove a truck halfway across the country and onto the lawn of his residence, the prime minister's residence, uh, in a vehicle that contained several loaded long guns. So um, that is the sort of incidents, incident that the rest of us can shrug off or laugh off or, you know, but uh, if someone had driven a truck up onto my lawn, I would tend <laughs> uh, and gotten arrested with a lot of, with a lot of uh, weaponry, I would be inclined to remember that and to integrate it into my thinking about um, people who disagreed on on vaccine policy, uh, driving large vehicles, you know, and you can also bet that the most lurid examples of extremism and unpredictability were the subjects of intelligence reports that were getting to the prime minister's staff. Um, and I guess the, what I reproach in the prime minister is he was unable or unwilling to realize that uh, this wasn't many thousands of people like that. It was many thousands of people who had, uh, you know, ways of expressing a disagreement that he might not have liked, but uh, but that everyone in this story was a Canadian <laughs> is kind of the story that is, is is kind of the conclusion that I draw, and caricaturing the other people in the story doesn't capture its complexity. I mean, so one of the things we both saw was that every group that came, you know, the police of Ottawa, the, the RCMP, the federal government, the various uh, uh, levels of government, they were all dysfunctional. By the <laughs> beginning of 2022, they were all exhausted. They were all operating on less than perfect information. Uh, and um, uh, so they were all making pretty lousy decisions. I, you know, I, like, and we would we would be surprised to hear uh, that anything else happened. I mean, by the beginning of 2022, if you tried to get a faucet fixed in your kitchen, uh, the 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 repair company would send over somebody bedraggled and exhausted and almost in tears. Like that's that's just the way life was at the beginning of this year. Yeah, uh, nothing worked. Yeah, exactly. And and and. Uh, you know, once you get away from trying to uh, pin blame, you notice uh, elements of the human story, like just the fact that, um, like Peter Stoley begins to cry in his testimony when he was talking about how cold it was. Uh, like that was also a, a thing that was that was that was going on. Yeah, and some of the convoy uh, volunteers and supporters that I. I kind of was following on Twitter and whatnot around then were, were sort of laughing at that because they were saying, well, yeah, we were cold too. That was the whole point of it. But, but you are right that that was exacerbating something that in Ottawa, the police did not feel they were prepared for. And I think that was one of the big failings here is that in, in Ottawa, you had this sense that no one was accepting, no one was taking the convoy at its word here when they said, yeah, we're all driving to Ottawa and we're all going to stay there for as long as it takes. Like that was something that no one in the policing side of it, certainly not the Ottawa police really bought. Yeah. Um, uh, well, and I think the police had different narratives and, and, and it's also interesting to me that kind of the, 
relative gold standard in terms of police intelligence uh, and response to large uh, high conflict events was the Ontario Provincial Police. Um, uh, frankly, because they'd had a lot of practice. Uh, and, and a because, very different approach from the Ottawa Police Service. Oh, throughout very that. much so. And, and although the OPP got along pretty well with the RCMP, also a different approach from the RCMP. Who are the OPP? They are the police who aren't in the big cities in Ontario. So they're the police from hockey country, essentially, and fishing country. And, you know, they live on highways. They uh, eat in restaurants where a lot of the uh, protesters uh, would eat. They, uh, you know, watch the same uh, shows. They, uh, you know, are on the same Facebook uh, uh, groups. And a, a, a lot of big city folks were surprised and concerned to learn that, that the OPP knew a lot of the, the you know, uh, had spoken to a lot of the protesters and uh, sometimes showed some sympathy for uh, how they went about their day. But it, it would be amazing if that wasn't the case. There's almost nobody in the OPP lives in downtown Toronto. And so they had different reflexes from anyone else. That's that's quite a, a brilliant analysis of that. And I, I hope you expand on that a bit in your book, because I, I do think that, I mean, there, there was one story that I wrote a, a few weeks back that was based on an audio file of a recording that I got between OPP and, and convoy organizers in which the OPP were actually apologizing for the Ottawa police fuel raid at the time. And, and that was the point where the Ottawa police liaison or the Ontario provincial police liaison sort of took a step back and said, okay, we're, we're not really in the mix here. And, and the sense that we really got throughout the, the course of the public order emergency commission testimony is that the OPP really felt like they could use engagement to get through this. And, and do you, were you able to identify a, a, the point at which the Ottawa police said, yeah, that's not going to do it anymore? Well, I mean, that fuel can thing was uh, hotly contested within the OPS. I mean, there were people who thought that um, uh, it was time to get serious about enforcement. And there were times people who said that's exactly the wrong thing. Um, um, the uh, I'm blanking on the name of the 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 three letter acronym for the group within the police that would um, negotiate. The PLT? Yeah, the PLT, the the whole PLT approach, which was um, don't enforce, discuss, and 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 um, uh, would often skate up to the line of being palsy walsy with uh, with these protesters. And uh, other police officers were not familiar with that whole approach. And, uh, and it's frankly shocking to people who didn't like the, 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 the convoy at all. And I kind of get that. Again, I sort of want to remind everyone that uh, just about every official who testified at this commission uh, spoke about getting death threats. Uh, this event was, among other things, a machine for generating death threats. And Tamara Leach, she got, said, Tamara Leach said she got death threats too, and I absolutely believe that. Um, but we should, as a society, avoid events that uh, that lead to everyone being involved receiving death threats. And that was one of the that was another part of the story. So, like an, another thing that has occurred to me that I uh, is that the the lawyer Paul Champ, who represented the Ottawa's downtowners who took out yeah. an injunction against them, his clientele 
resembles the trucker more close the truckers more closely than it resembles any other clientele. Paul Champ's uh, uh, clients were not rich. They're mostly were not federal public servants. They're mostly people who work in the service industry in the downtown of a of a city where the downtown neighborhoods are not the rich neighborhoods. Uh, and they were just fed up. I mean, uh, they were fed up in a different way at a different time in their lives than the protesters who'd come to town. But uh, but they also felt helpless. And um, I I have read a lot of care a lot read and heard a lot of caricatures about what sort of people live in downtown Ottawa. And they come from people who cannot have ever spent time in downtown Ottawa. I don't live in downtown Ottawa. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I'm sort of guilty of that myself, not, not on an individual level, but sort of when I go to Ottawa, cause I, I lived there very briefly, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And when I go to Ottawa, I remember that, oh yeah, there are people here that aren't just people that live and work in these few square blocks. There are people that do any of the other things that are in a city of, of the size of Ottawa. And it is easy, especially if you only your only experience in Ottawa is on, you know, Wellington street or uh, a couple of blocks around there. And, and I, I think that's a, that's a fair, fair enough point. And, you know, I think there were some people that I heard from that were Ottawa residents that were supportive of the convoys aims, but not like, okay, guys, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, but you know, get off my street, that sort of thing. And I don't know how many of those there were, but it's understandable that there, there would have been some, I, let me just ask you about, Justin Trudeau's testimony here very briefly, Paul, because I thought that he did very well, um, given the circumstances. I, I thought that he was the, the last one. So every bit of evidence that was going to come up was already on the table. I wasn't sure if we were going to get the really annoying press conference, Justin Trudeau, or something else. And we got something else. I mean, he, he sounded very candid. He was giving short yes or no answers at various points. And I thought he... Again, I didn't agree with his justification, but I, I felt he gave as clear a justification as he could have for what his position is. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was very interesting. He was really superbly prepped to the point where he wasn't just playing the cassette, but he could uh, improvise. And when good lawyers pushed at him on various uh, points of, of detail, uh, he was able to push back. Um, he was also clearly part of a team. He was also clearly part of a well-rehearsed effort. I don't, I, one day I might find out how many people in this government were working on prepping hmm. the ministers and the prime minister for their testimony. Um, but I was at Halifax at the Halica Halifax Security Forum and Jody Thomas, uh, the prime minister's uh, uh, national security advisor was at Halifax as she would normally have been expected to be an important conference she had a earbud in her ear the whole night because she was listening to janice charette the uh clerk of the privy council uh testify live and she was not paying that much attention to what was happening in front of her because she was part of this team that was following the the testimony so what was trudeau's role he had to bat bat clean up on two outstanding points one was this CSIS test that um did the level of turmoil rise to the level specified in the CSIS Act for a public order emergency? And the other was this supposed February 13th plan that the Ottawa police had finally cobbled together to, uh, in concert with the uh, OPP and the RCMP. Trudeau's task was to bomb those two bridges, to say, 
the CSIS test was absolutely met. And the February 13th plan that would have meant there was no need for the Emergencies Act was a lousy plan. And on those two points, I don't think he was uh, persuasive. Uh, but it was impressive that he went in with those two things in mind. And he, you know, he made the most vigorous case they could concoct on those two points. Um, it, 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 it shows, as I say, the level of, of, of preparation that uh, every federal official showed up with. I mean, contrast that with poor Brenda Lucky, the RCMP uh, <laughs> commissioner, who seems to have been cut loose because she was not prepped at all. Yeah, and I, I actually have wondered, because early on, I, I sort of assumed that there would have to be a, a fall guy or a, a fall gal in this. And I, I, you know, I was convinced early on it might have been Marco Mendicino, just because he was the one that was really sent out to sell this uh, fairly aggressively when it was all happening. And, and uh, now I just wonder if it'll just be Brenda Lucky when all is said and done. Or maybe they don't need a fall guy, because... Uh... The the thing that's a little surprising is that the public opinion polling on this has been rock solid. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and the the uh, support for the use of the Emergencies Act has been solidly higher than general support for the Liberal Party against its opponents. Uh, so that would tend to tell you that um, the use of the Emergencies Act and the long, long discussion about whether it was proper to use the Emergencies Act has actually been has actually been pulling the liberals up in the polls. Um, now, what do you attribute that to? Because my my instinct would be to say that the media's characterization of the convoy has contributed to that perception, but you may have a, a wildly different one. Um, I mean, I the 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 thing is, I can I can sort of believe that what in the spring when everyone's watching on TV and they're seeing round the clock, uh, quite alarmist coverage of, of uh, uh, what sort of characters the, these protesters were. But months and months and months later, when we've all turned the page and we're all stuck in a courtroom, listening to testimony, uh, seeing uh, uh, different levels of government disagreeing with each other, seeing cabinet ministers uh, joking about uh, putative colleagues behind their back and um, making jokes about sending tanks in, um, I think it's basically that months, months later, it's hard to demonstrate large numbers of, it's hard to point to large numbers of Canadians whose lives were, were ruined by the Emergencies Act. There are still figures who are still facing, uh, you know, criminal charges and they're having to defend themselves and that's, that's unpleasant for them and, and, you know, we'll see how that turns out. But there aren't whole classes of Canadians who, who have no access to their bank accounts, as it seemed it might be the case early on. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, uh, and then something else that doesn't get remarked on is uh, the convoy didn't win because they didn't get a, a change to policy immediately while they were in Ottawa. But all month long, while people were testifying in the um, uh, in that hearing room at the National Archives. Uh, Everyone in that room was coughing. Nobody was wearing masks. Uh, everyone had cough drops rattling around in the back of their of their mouths. Uh, the uh, no mask, less uh, uh, less prominent use of of of, of vaccines. Uh, everyone getting along according to their own conception of the rules, rather than than according to fixed rules that were 
handed down by government. Th that's the way we were all living our lives, uh, you know, this autumn. And, um, and so I think that might lead just about everyone to realize that the, the really uh, blatant direct confrontation that was symbolized by the by the convoy versus the police and the governments and so on is not the way we're actually living our lives now and maybe people are chilling out a bit that is very well said and i think a, a perfect note to end on here we might not agree on on everything about the convoy but i think your perspective on the uh, commission and the broader story here is a, a really important one uh, you are doing fantastic work over at your Substack. that is at paulwells.substack.com and i know you've got your take on this coming out uh, in just a couple of months through uh, sutherland quarterly and i'm glad that uh, ken white has asked you to uh, do that or rope you into it whichever is the the most accurate description but uh, paul thanks very much and Merry Christmas to you. Thanks. Merry Christmas to you. That was Paul Wells. And like I say, you don't need to agree with someone to appreciate their analysis and perspective on this. Paul has always been very fair and even keel on this. And I'm glad that he was uh, suffering through the Public Order Emergency Commission as well. I'm, I'm glad that my publisher, Ken White, has uh, tapped him to do this. So that's something you'll want to read. And, I, you know, I think his point is actually probably one that will withstand the test of time, that no one comes out squeaky clean on this. I mean, the whole nature of the convoy is that it was grassroots. Anyone could have just showed up and by and large, many people did just show up. So you couldn't be accountable for what every single individual there did, which is why the organizers, people like Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, constantly put out the message that this is a peaceful protest. And I think that where history is clear is that it remained that until the very end. That does it for us for today. We've got to wrap things up there, but I will say thank you very much. This is our last program before Christmas. So I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.